Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love this city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. We do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. On many shows, like tonight, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, if you've listened to the show before, you know that we host shows about interesting and vital colors of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. On prior episodes, we've talked about presidents of the United States who've lived in or come from New York. We've covered African-American history in the city. We've explored the history of women's active, women activists in the women's suffrage movement. And we've also looked at the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. And we've explored the history of bicycles. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcasts. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're doing another one of our virtual shows due to the ongoing health crisis in the city. And we're visiting a very special neighborhood. It's in the city's most populous borough, and it's one that's steeped in a lot of history, in urban life, in politics, in commerce, and the arts. And we're talking about downtown Brooklyn. My first guest is Rediscovering New York regular, uh, and David Griffin, who's also our special consultant to the show. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast providing creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. He's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings, and I've been lucky enough to be part of David's tours. David's latest blog, Every Building on Fifth, documents every single building on Fifth Avenue, from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. His writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. David, a hearty welcome to Rediscovering New York. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. How are you tonight? Good. Good. Glad Thanks to be for back. Being with us in our little, uh, our little um, uh, yes. technical difficulty, but we've, but we've solved it. Right. How are you doing up in the Hudson Valley? Oh, fairly well. We've got a big yard here, so it's a lot of yard work, and it's kind of nice to have some time to uh, put into that. So, yeah, we're, we're mm. sequestered. Oh, well, good. I'm hoping good that you and your mom and the family are staying healthy and safe. Um, you're a regular on the show, and some of our listeners know in you and your background, but we have a growing number of listeners, and some don't. Um, want to ask you briefly, you're from the area, but not from the city itself, at least not originally. No, I know. I was uh, born uh, in New York, but raised out on Long Island near Port Jeff until I was about 10 or 11. And then we moved up to the Hudson River Valley, where my grandmother's uh, family was originally from. So, but I've always worked or lived in and around the city. And uh, I uh, worked in the art world for about 17 years. I was with uh, Thomas & Associates, the art consulting firm, and then shifted over to my own company, which is um, Landmark Branding, uh, which does marketing for real estate. How did you get interested in architectural history, David, and in New York history in particular? 
Well, my siblings and I were the first costumed interpreters to be employed by the state of New York at the old Bethpage Village Restoration site out on Long Island. And what happened was we were um, given period clothing from the 1850s to wear, and we would demonstrate the use of toys and other things. Uh, so we really loved being able to interact with the historic environment at that level. And I think my interest really was, it just sort of grew from there into how the fabric of the, the country was really built. So um, I studied at Vassar, as you well know, and took a double major in English and art history. Um, my focus has always been on American architecture, uh, which I feel is a very uh, versatile subject. Uh, with a special interest in 1850s through the 1950s, the, the full development of modernism. Great. When full disclosure, David and I both hail from the same uh, college, from Vassar College. Um, that brings us to downtown Brooklyn, David. Um, some people think of it as kind of nondescript and not very interesting um, and actually kind of ho-hum, but there is a trove of many wonderful things about downtown Brooklyn, um, starting with its history. Um, I always like to go to the history of peoples who were living in New York before Europeans came. Were there Native people living in this part of Brooklyn before Europeans started to settle in the area? Uh, yes, the Lenape Natives were here uh, and lived in this particular part of what later became New York City until the 17th century. Um, the Lenape were part of uh, the peoples that were known as the Montauk people, and most of us think of Montauk as being a town now on the other end of Long Island. But there are numerous references in uh, Brooklyn locations to the word Montauk, which was the sort of overarching uh, language, if you will, for the peoples of Long Island, the native people. Mm. And um, before the name Brooklyn, um, which is the anglicized version of the Dutch town Broeckelen, which is in the Netherlands, um, was the place known by another name before it got this name? Yes, uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly, but it was known as Rinnegokong. So there are a lot of native names out on um, Long Island. Ronkonkoma, for example, is a, a native word. Uh, I believe Patchogue is as well. And uh, most of them have to do, I believe, with uh, bodies of water. So what was the place like? What was the area like when Europeans started to settle in the middle of the 17th century? Well, the waterfront area was sold by the Indians to Doris um, Jansen of Rappelgee. I hope I'm pronouncing that as well, too, who was actually one of the Dutch colony's earliest settlers, and his daughter was the first child to be born in the Dutch colonies um, in, in what became later New York State. Uh, so he obtained the property from them in the, uh, I'd say, the, the later part of the 17th century, um, and he used it for farming purposes. He did not actually live there, uh, but he had extensive sort of farms and plantations in that area. Uh, and it sort of remained farm country until really the early 19th century, until around 1814 or so. Um, downtown Brooklyn, what is now downtown Brooklyn, as well as Brooklyn Heights, were quite sparsely populated. There were only a relative handful of major landowners in the area, and they were running estates the way that you see farms up in the Hudson River Valley now. Mm. Well, we, then the American Revolution eventually came after the British settled, uh, or the, after the British took over New Amsterdam from the Dutch, turning it into New York. And we actually have a burgeoning technology and a famous person to thank for the area's more rapid development after the turn into the 19th century. What was that about? Absolutely. It was Robert Fulton's new steam ferry. Uh, we've talked about Brooklyn Heights. 
and the effects that the ferry had on the development of Brooklyn Heights as what was uh, probably America's first real luxurious suburb. Well, it also offered an easy commuting option to and from downtown Manhattan, and it put downtown Brooklyn on its way to becoming a commercial center and the heart of the city of Brooklyn. Now, one thing that we have to remember was back then, Brooklyn was a separate city from New York. New York was Manhattan. Brooklyn was its own city. And there were numerous places in Brooklyn that were sort of burgeoning centers. Williamsburg, for example, has a historic center that is somewhat similar to the massing of uh, downtown Brooklyn during the 1840s period. What really put downtown Brooklyn where it is now is the fact that it was so close to the ferry from the tip of Wall Street. That mm -hmm. was still the major area in New York. So, When was Brooklyn incorporated as its own city? Uh, 1834, Brooklyn became its own city and then was um, basically brought into the fold of New York with the consolidation in the early 20th century. And of course, what we know is downtown Brooklyn now was the center of, of, of the city itself. Yes, that's um, why the civic monuments are there. Let's talk a little bit about one of my favorite buildings in downtown Brooklyn, uh, Borough Hall, which was originally built as City Hall. Yes. And it dates from before 1850. Yes, the t foundations were actually dug in 1836, but because of basic financial problems that were going on, construction wasn't started on the building until 1845, and it wasn't finished until 1848. Um, it was designed by two architects, Calvin Pollard came up with the first design, and then Gamala King came up with the uh, a somewhat refined version of that. He, I believe he enlarged it somewhat, but also made it a little bit more simple. As you noted, it's in the Greek Revival style. It's one of the most major um, examples of the style in Brooklyn. And it's constructed of Tuckahoe marble, which is also kind of a notable stone for the period. Uh, it's Brooklyn's oldest intact public building and one of the oldest civic buildings um, in New York City. Uh, there was actually a proposal to knock it down in the 1930s, but fortunately that didn't happen. And in 1966, the building was finally designated a landmark by the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, uh, which had just been founded the year before. You know, that's another one of the things that thankfully got saved. Uh, Borough Hall is such an amazing building. And to think yeah. that um, the city of Brooklyn was able to, to, to build that, that structure in the 1840s, it's just incredible. Uh, many of our listeners who've not had the pleasure of going inside, I really, I, it's, a, it, it's a real treat. Um, the marble floor alone in the, in the main uh, rotunda is, is worth the price of admission. Yes. Um, what kind of development took place in downtown Brooklyn before and immediately after the Civil War? There was some residential development, but not a great deal. There are some houses that survive on the north end of what is now downtown Brooklyn, but mostly it was market buildings, banks, um, it was things like, uh, obviously, the city hall. There was a courthouse there. There was a separate structure. Uh, there was a hall of records. Uh, there was adjacent to downtown Brooklyn, but I think more over in uh, sort of between downtown Brooklyn and Brooklyn Heights, there was the original Brooklyn Academy of Music, uh, the music hall, which then moved to its present location around the turn of the 19th century um, and is still there, of course. So uh, it was very much a, a commercial center. Fulton Street was lined with department stores, still is, um, restaurants, bars, taverns, hotels, all that were there to kind of, you know, sort of serve people who were passing through for business purposes. Um, and yeah, not much by way of residential until really the 20th century. 
And even then, in the early 20th century, only a relative handful of apartment buildings were added. Mm. Well, I want to uh, backtrack just a little bit and, and explore how the opening of the bridge, of the Brooklyn Bridge, impacted the development of downtown. How did the opening of the bridge really impact uh, what we now know as downtown Brooklyn? It really caused a huge uptick in commercial uh, development. It was, uh, it, the same thing happened sort of to Brooklyn as a whole. All of a sudden, the bridges were making it possible for vehicular traffic to move from Long Island, not just Brooklyn, but Long Island as a whole, into the city and beyond, and vice versa. So uh, it's really after the Brooklyn Bridge opens that you see Brooklyn begin to grow in leaps and bounds, really kind of past the, the brownstone rows, the kind of where the, the pre-bridge era, the apartment buildings start coming into play, they start popping up all over, skyscrapers suddenly are, you know, really sort of a major thing. Uh, it's easier for office workers to get, you know, from where they need to be to elsewhere in the city. So yeah, the effect of the Brooklyn Bridge cannot be um, understated. And then coming along in the early 20th century, 20 years after the bridge, we see the opening of the IRT line, the subway, and that really sort of set things off and running. Once the elevated started reaching down towards Coney Island, this, the, the entire borough just really kind of fell into place as where you see the most rapid development along those corridors during that time period from around 1908 through the early 1930s. Mm. Well, you know, I, being a, a history buff, I love looking at old photographs and one, uh, we can't show it on, on the air, obviously, but there's a great photograph um, uh, that's taken from about the place where uh, Borough Hall is right now. That's where Cadman Plaza is now that shows this uh, uh, train terminal. It shows uh, uh, loops of, of, of streetcars going onto the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, it was sort of right in the center of the Civic Center. But, yes, uh, yes. Um, there was, there was a, a fair amount of criticism of that, actually. There was um, uh, someone who I believe came from a city, I don't know if it was Chicago, or a city that was out in the Midwest to see how New York was handling its transport. And he went to downtown Brooklyn and looked at those huge sort of elevated train tracks kind of curving through the parks. And he said, well, if you want to see how not to do it, go to New York. <laughs> but most of those have been removed. So, uh, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's very easy for us to look at the, the handsome remnants that have survived, like, like Borough Hall, and think, oh, you know, look at some of these less attractive buildings. It'd be nice if the older ones were there. Not all of the stuff that was there during that time period was... Um, particularly nice. So uh, there was a really kind of a, a medley of things. And the transportation right in the center there was a real snarl. Although it's interesting, the uh, general post office was on the edge of that. And that's, and that really is a, uh, is a stunning building. Yes. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin and my other guests about downtown Brooklyn. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Rediscovered okay. New York, and our first guest, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David, why don't you take a minute to tell us about your company and what you do at Landmark Branding? Well, Landmark Branding provides uh, marketing support for um, realtors, for developers, designers, architectural firms. Uh, I've worked to create um, everything from corporate bios and profiles to brochure copy for uh, sales of buildings. Uh, I've worked on portfolios of buildings that are held or owned by developers. I've worked with architects to talk about their projects and created VIP tours and events for realtors and for other real estate enthusiasts. Um, I believe you may have mentioned in past episodes the um, networking series I run with Jennifer Wallace of Maystar New York, Room at the Top, where we tour historic skyscrapers, uh, going into the lobbies and talking about art and architecture as economic engines. Uh, and I also work with uh, numerous other uh, organizations, um, including the American Friends of the Louvre uh, and the Montauk Club, a historic club building out in Park Slope in Brooklyn, which is a Speaking of Brooklyn. <laughs> incredible Venetian Gothic building. Uh, so, uh, yes, I have a, a blog, uh, um, Every Building on Fifth, which is a photograph and brief history of every single building on Fifth Avenue, beginning with the Washington Square Arch moving up forward and uh, working on a book project on the history of the penthouse um, based on a talk that um, you have kindly hosted many times. Yes. Well, you're a great speaker, and I love your talks. And uh, uh, everyone can actually access every building on Fifth. It talks about every single building on Fifth Avenue. Uh, and you can find it through David's uh, website, which is? Uh, landmarkbranding.com. All right. Okay, so moving back to downtown Brooklyn, uh, when would downtown begin looking like the downtown Brooklyn that we see today, David? Basically, it started with the, the Brooklyn Bridge, but it didn't really pick up until after uh, the 1890s. And then all of a sudden, there's an explosion in construction. You start seeing the large public buildings that we see there today. You start seeing early skyscrapers. Um, people may be familiar with the Williamsburg Bank building, which is sort of at the edge of downtown. 
uh, an Art Deco masterpiece, which was the tallest building in Brooklyn until recently. Um, and then there's another collection of skyscrapers, very interesting ones, that has been preserved as the Borough Hall Skyscraper District, a historic district. And it's a collection of early high-rises that includes one of the oldest uh, skyscrapers left in New York City, the Temple Bar Building, which is in the French Second Empire style and was designed in 1899. Um, Fulton Street, of course, had become an important shopping destination. We see most of the major department stores are built between 1890 and the 1930s. Uh, so you had Macy's, you had uh, numerous other buildings of that time, and mo many of those still survive in part. Uh, there are also massive savings banks erected throughout the whole area, along with the, the new civic buildings. And one of the most beautiful is the Dime Savings Bank, uh, which is on Fulton Street. And I don't think, unfortunately, I don't think you can go into the lobby at present, and I don't know what the future plans for that space are. It's being incorporated into a residential development. But the interior of that is one of the real glories of New York City with gigantic marble columns that are decorated with these plaques that actually resemble the silver dimes of that time period. And they're real, it's just an extraordinary experience space with a beautiful clock in the center of it. So I am hoping that once that project is done, people will be able to visit there. Um, restaurants are there. Um, Gage and Tolner, of course, is there, which has an incredible kind of um, Aladdin lamp kind of uh, interior. And yeah, so most of it went up from around, I'd say in 1890s through the 1930s is when the core of those historic buildings went in. And then of course we had the Great Depression. And how did the depression impact um, the area, impact downtown? What happened um, in the 30s? Well, pretty much the same way it impacted everywhere. Uh, but I think in Brooklyn, it was a bit rougher because Brooklyn did not have Brooklyn didn't have the, the, the sort of the, the commercial and financial mass that Manhattan did. It wasn't the international destination Manhattan was. It didn't have the, you know, the, the millionaires and billionaires lining Fifth Avenue or Park Avenue or Madison Avenue who still wanted to stay there and live there and shop there and eat there. And Brooklyn Heights, for example, though we now think of it as a very, you know, it's a beautiful neighborhood and it was definitely a very aristocratic one when it was first conceived and developed. Um, it actually became very sort of derelict. Um, a lot of the houses were boarding houses or they were uh, in very bad shape. Um, mansions were demolished, buildings were taken down, places were derelict. And downtown Brooklyn, I think, saw a lot of that as well. There was a lot of um, just sort of dereliction and decay, unfortunately. Mm. Well, um, like many parts of the United States, the Second World War came and the war economy in the post-war period um, lifted the United States into a really fantastic economy. Um, like any modernizing area, it created winners, but also created some losers, especially in certain industries. How did downtown Brooklyn develop in the decades after the war? Downtown Brooklyn developed fairly slowly, although there was, of course, as you say, there was a new uh, you know, kind of an entirely new economy that had been generated by the war. And a lot of that, you know, was reflected by activity in places like the Navy Yard, which are adjacent. Um, there were buildings that came in that were built in the 1950s. Uh, but by the late 1960s, Brooklyn was beginning to see something that a lot of other American cities were seeing, which was flight to the suburbs. And in the 60s, this initiated concern to protect the borough's central business district from deterioration. So in 1969, there was a comprehensive plan for the entire city. 
And the plan suggests that downtown Brooklyn specifically addresses challenges through a combination of public and private efforts. Um, some examples of this were a 22-story privately financed office tower, which is a forum place in Livingston Street, opened in 1971. And uh, another thing that was a very important thing for downtown Brooklyn, and still is, was the continued growth of the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, that organization really put itself on the map in the 70s. Uh, it was very much a center for the avant-garde. Uh, it's sort of reputation succeeded beyond um, expectations. It was a very symbolic anchor uh, for the community during that period. So those things like of that nature kept downtown Brooklyn sort of generating. It kept people sort of interested in it. It kept people going in. Of course, you still had the borough hall there, the courthouses, other things like that. So there was still a certain professional kind of dialogue going on. But yeah, it, it did kind of founder through those years. Mm. And then in the beginning of this century, there was some major rezoning that also would bring substantial changes to downtown and the establishment of some new commercial areas. Do you want to talk about how the past couple of decades have, have uh, brought change to downtown Brooklyn? Yes. I mean, I think we're all aware of the, the growing sort of tide of gentrification that began in the late 1980s and kind of continued, uh, saw a steep upswing in the late 1990s. In 2004, parts of downtown Brooklyn were rezoned to allow for denser residential development. And so that means that the area has seen the arrival of new condominium towers, townhouses, office conversions. Um, there are, uh, I believe, 14,000 residential units were planned for downtown Brooklyn that year alone. And uh, I remember there was a report in 2007 on the arrival of downtown Brooklyn as a uh, People were kind of hyping it up that it was now a 24-7 community. Um, they were talking about seeing 35,000 residents coming to the area within the next five years. I don't know how many people are there currently, but it certainly is a much more populated district than it, than it ever used to be. I mean, we're talking about a place that had, you know, almost no housing whatsoever, becoming a place that's now seen as, you know, kind of a residential possibility for people who are looking for a very urban lifestyle. Mm. And then you had another um, significant rezoning for uh, the Fulton Mall area. And that has resulted in an expansion of office space, ground floor retail, and rezoning that kind of helps to improve, I think, the, the connections between downtown and the adjacent neighborhoods of Cobble Hill, Borough Hill, and Fort Greene. There are a lot of highways and other things, large sort of boulevards kind of separate downtown Brooklyn from those areas. And they're addressing ways to kind of monitor traffic and pedestrian accessibility. Mm. But the redevelopment was not without some controversy in terms of uh, uh, preservation. There has been plenty of controversy. <laughs> wherever there's gentrification, wherever there's rezoning, there will be controversy. Downtown Brooklyn is uh, no, no exception. Um, just to give one example, um, there is some... Um, uh, there was a, a, a real spat in 2007 about a row of houses at Duffield Street, 223-235. Uh, they were acquired by the city via eminent domain. Then uh, they were demolished, and they were going to replace them with 500 new hotel rooms, 1,000 units of mixed-income housing, and more than 500,000 square feet of retail space. Um, however, only one of the buildings was actually replaced by a hotel, um, there was a great protest about these particular buildings because they were very important to a part of downtown Brooklyn's history, which was to do with abolitionism uh, 
prior to the Civil War, to believe that the houses up and down that street, which represented a rare residential development for that area, were part of the Underground Railroad. So it was a shame to see any of them taken down at all. But um, yeah, so I know that was something that made people upset. Well, David, in the couple of minutes that we have left for this segment, um, let's talk about the current downtown Brooklyn. Um, most people don't really think about it as such, but it's actually one of the top central business districts in, this, in, in New York. And it yep. also is a locus of different kinds of urban living, of education, of commerce, and the arts. Yes, we have New York University um, uh, expanding the Tandon School of Engineering there. Uh, we've already mentioned the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Uh, on the other edge of downtown is the Barclays Center, which is, you know, obviously a major center for basketball, hockey, concerts, live entertainment. The Mark Morris Dance Company is in Brooklyn, uh, downtown Brooklyn. You've got Borough Hall Green Market, uh, which is uh, on the plaza fronting Borough Hall. Uh, Metro Tech Center is there. That's expanding. Um, the... Uh, the kind of traffic that you see on Fulton is being sort of changed over. There's a lot of redevelopment. There's a lot of actually restoration of some of the great old department stores. And uh, yeah, it's, it's become a very, very vibrant district, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad to see it heading in the, the direction that it's going. And I think a lot of the, the great classic atmosphere of the place will be preserved. Well, thankfully, there's one part of downtown that hasn't changed, and that's Juniors. I actually lived in Borham Hill for a number of years, and Juniors uh, was a three-minute walk, and uh, once okay. a week uh, I would go. And uh, I also uh, was still eating meat in those days, so I uh, <laughs> would uh, uh, have a real uh, uh, real feast. And, of course, what Juniors is, is really known for is its cheesecake. Right. Um, David, thank you so much for returning and being a guest on Rediscovering New York. My first guest has been David Griffin. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. David, what's the URL for Landmark Branding? Um, Landmarkbranding.com. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, we're going to take a short Always a pleasure. We're going to be take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have a number of second special guests uh, who are recreating and um, reinvigorating one of those businesses that David talked about uh, from the 19th century. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, Mortgage Specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please call Chris at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the Law Offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 412- Four nine five zero three one seven. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good morning, New York real estate with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. And you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on those channels are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our next guests, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in the city, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, we have some special guests for the second half of the show. They are the three partners who are reopening. One is one of Brooklyn's most iconic and perhaps its oldest existing restaurant, Gage and Tolner. There are three partners. Our first guest is St. John Frizzell. Sinjin is an award-winning writer, bartender, and restaurateur of skill and passion, as the New York Times has called him. He got a start in the culinary world as a copy editor for Bon Appetit, but quit in 2005 to travel the world in the footsteps of legendary bon vivant and cocktail culture writer Charles H. Baker. Upon his return to the States, Frizzell landed at Pegu Club to learn the art of mixology and went on to open Fort Defiance his critically acclaimed Cafe Bar and Red Hook. That's also in Brooklyn, by the way. He's opened that in 2009. When he and his partners reopen Gage and Tolner, Sinjin will establish the first brick and mortar outpost of his lauded Tiki Pop-Up Sunken Harbor Club, which is gonna be on the second floor of the restaurant. In addition to serving as the drinks correspondent for Men's Journal, Frizzell's writing on food, culinary history, and cocktails have appeared in Bon Appetit, Seveur, and Fine Cooking and published in the Best Food Writing Series. By the way, if anyone Googles uh, Sinjin, his name is spelled St. John Frizzell, even though it's pronounced Sinjin. Uh, 
Our two other second guests are Zoe Kim and Ben Schneider. Zoe is a classically trained chef, restaurateur, and celebrated cookbook author. She was born in Seoul, Korea, and honed her culinary skills under several lauded chefs, including Dan Barber and Michelle, Michael Anthony at Blue Hill, Peter Hoffman at Savoy, and Anita Lowe in her Michelin-starred restaurant, Anissa. She is executive chef and partner in Gage and Tolner, and when it opens, it will mark the third and largest endeavor in Sohi's collection of beloved Brooklyn eateries. In 2006, she and her husband, Ben, opened the Good Fork in Red Hook. It's a Michelin bib gourmand restaurant serving seasonally inspired global comfort food. And in 2015, they opened the Korean barbecue and karaoke <laughs> hotspot Insa in Gowanus, which went on to receive a glowing two-star review from the New York Times and earned her no a nomination for the James Beard Foundation's prestigious Best Chef NYC Award in 2019. And speaking of so, he's husband and partner, Ben Schneider. Ben is engaged in Tolner's Director of Infrastructure. He orchestrates all engineering, construction, architectural, and restoration efforts for the historic restaurant. Ben designed the Good Fork and Insa. His expert craftsmanship extends beyond tangibility as he masterfully tailors each build-out to optimize service flow and create the best dining experience possible for each guest. Well, your team and partnerships sound like a match made in restaurant Genesis Heaven. Welcome, <laughs> Sinjin, Ben, and Sohi to Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I always like to ask my guests because the show is about New Yorkers and their passions <laughs> about sharing things about themselves with, with the neighborhoods that they're in. Uh, Sohi, you're obviously not from New York originally. Ben and, and, and Sinjin, are you from New York? I am. I'm, I'm from the Upper West Side, 87th ah. Broadway, born and raised. Um, New Jersey. And well, that's that's the New York area. Um, so what what had just what had you decided to move to the States and to New York in particular? Oh, gosh. Um, well, actually, it wasn't my decision to make. It was my father. Uh, and I okay, think. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, yeah, we we immigrated when I was 10 years old from Seoul, Korea. So was going through a lot of. Um, problems and developing and stuff like that. And I think, you know, my father was very much along, you know, a lot of the other sort of Korean immigrants uh, in terms of moving to the States for, you know, the, the, the quintessential, you know, the, the immigrant dream uh, of making a, a better and new start. Um, and so that's how we ended up in New York City. Mm. Well, you all own businesses in Red Hook. Uh, and now um, you, Ben and Zoe, also own one in Gowanus. Uh, Fort Defiance in Red Hook, owned by Sinjin, has been in business since 2009, and the Good Fork since 2005. Zoe and Ben, was the Good Fork your first businesses as an owner? Your first businesses as owners? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, well, I was self-employed as a carpenter previous to that, so I guess ah. I was in, sort of in business that way. But <clears throat> um, as far as like a brick and mortar, like serving customers thing, yeah, the Good Fork was, was our step into that mm. deep pond. Sinjin, was Fort Defiance your first business as an owner? Uh, yeah, certainly. Oh. Um, I want to ask Zoe and Ben a question. Um, did you meet through the restaurant and hospitality business, or did you meet somewhere else and decide to go into business after you met and uh, became partners, became spouses? Uh, uh, no. The story, of us, sorry, the story of us meeting quickly is that uh, I was, in, in addition to being a carpenter, I was a, an actor, a, a theater performer. And my way to support myself was as a cabinet maker. And I was in a play with uh, Sohi's best friend from grade school in the Bronx, an amazing performer named uh, Okwi Opokwasili. 
who is a MacArthur Genius Award grantee, by the way. Oh, yes, uh, a year two ago. Two years ago. <laughs> um, and she and I were in a Jean Cocteau play. I played Orfei, and she played the character of Death. And so he came to see the play, and that's when we met. And she was in culinary school at the time, and wow. had a passion for food. Uh, and anyway, that, that was the beginning of our story. And it was a few years later that I encouraged and convinced Zoe that we should just go ahead and build this place and, and open the good for it. Yeah. We, I mean, in all honesty, <laughs> um, knowing what we know now today about the restaurant business, we would have never have done it, but I think it was very much about trying to fuse two passions together to try to spend some time together. It was very, very sort of romantic notion. Like a lot of people have about, I would wear like an Obi-Wan Kenobi cloak and go back in time and speak to myself. <laughs> Well, I say the same thing about the real estate business. If I knew about the real estate business, what I've learned, what I learned about it after going into it, I don't know that I would have done it. But I'm ensconced, exactly. and, you know, already exactly. settled here. Yeah. Um, uh, Sinjin, when did you meet Zoe and Ben? Uh, I met these guys in um, uh, 2002 um, at a bar in Red Hook, and I was looking to move to the neighborhood. I was living in uh, Park Slope at the time, and. Um, uh, ben was uh, rehabbing a house on a coffee street in Red Hook. So I was their first uh, tenant. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we sealed the deal at Lily's Bar, no? Yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really easy. That was 18, 18 years ago, you know, uh, and we've been uh, friends ever since. Oh. Well, let's, let's go to your newest venture, Engage and Toner. Um, Gage and Toner was opened almost 150 years ago in 1879. It's one of Brooklyn's most iconic restaurants. It, it's, it's one of the, for, for those of us who are of a certain age, you know, it's synonymous with old world in, in, in Brooklyn. How did Gage and Toner show up on the three of your radars as, as a place that you were going to recreate, revitalize, you know, regenerate? Because it had been closed as a restaurant since the early 2000s. What led you to say, this is it. This is this is our. This is this is where we're gonna. This is where we're gonna create our our new business. Ben, Ben, uh, tell them about uh, Peter. So I I had been interested in Gage and Toner a decade previous. Um, I don't know how I learned about it, but I, I somehow did, and I became instantly obsessed with the idea of it, and and started to research it, and discovered that one of my early supporters at the Good Fork was a former owner of Gage and Toner. Peter Ashkenazi. Um, and so I, I called him and I said, Hey, Peter, what about this place, Gage and Tolner? It's so it's, it's fascinating. And, and he said, well, it's, it's complicated and you're not ready. You're, you know, you're, you're a very young restaurateur and uh, you know, it's, it, it is an interesting place, but he, he talked me off the ledge basically. And then flash forward 10 years and, and Sinjin, I'll pass it to you now to tell the rest of the story. Um, but, but separately, Sinjin had a knowledge of Gage and Tolner and then we kind of stumbled upon it. Sinjin? Yeah, I was, um, I was looking for a, uh, I, I was really interested in opening a place in the downtown Brooklyn neighborhood. I've always liked it down there. It's, it's very exciting. And, uh, my kid uh, goes to school down there. Um, and, uh, I thought it was also a great time for the three of us to work, uh, together. So, uh, the idea was I would do the drinks and so he would do the food and Ben would do the build out and, and, uh, and it would be this great partnership. So we were looking for a little 
space to open a little uh, cocktail bar, something with like 40 seats that we could run with, uh, you know, just a few employees. And um, uh, we looked at a few spaces. And then one day in April 2017, um, we were with a realtor and looking at a few spots that we didn't like. And she said, well, let me show you something else. And starts to walk us down Fulton Street directly towards uh, Gage and Tolner. And I turned to Ben and I said, is she about to walk us into Gage and Tolner? And sure enough, she opened it up and there it was. And, you know, if you know the history of the place, it was, um, you know, it closed in 2004 and it became a, um, it, it was open from 1879 to uh, 2004. Closed then, became a uh, TGI Fridays, and then became an Arby's and then became a clothing store and then another a clothing store, then another clothing store. And that's how I knew it. I never w- went there when the restaurant was open, but um, went there when it was a clothing store just to see what was left of it. Um, and when we, when we walked in the door that day in April uh, 2017, it had been completely cleared out and you could finally see the restaurant as it was meant to be seen. And I was shocked to see that so much of it was, was uh, preserved. We're going to take a break in a minute, but I wanted to ask you um, how long it took you to put together before you actually started on the work to, to revitalize it. How long did the planning take you? Uh, Well, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, you know the timeline better than me. Um, It took about, I mean, we started to talk about the business plan on the, on the ride home in Ben's uh, truck and you know, we kind of sketched it out there and it just grew and grew and grew. Um, I would say probably about a, a year and a half um, of sort of, you know, refining the business plan and finding the investors and everything else. Hmm. Okay, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, I'm going to ask you about the renovation and some of the challenges that you may have had. And of course, about the uh, um, uh, when the restaurant is going to, you know, reopens again, which hopefully will be very soon. Um, We'll be back in a moment. Uh, You're listening to Rediscovering New York on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com 
are back to Rediscovering New York and our show about downtown Brooklyn. My guests for the second part of our show are Sinjin Frizzell, Zoe Kim, and Ben Schneider, uh, the partners in the soon-to-be-newly reopened Gage and Tolner restaurant on Fulton Street. Um, let's talk about the renovation. You know, I passed the front, the front of the restaurant some months ago, and it was obvious that there was substantial work going on inside. And it sort of was a, a little deja vu-ish for me because I had been to the restaurant a couple of times in the late 70s. When I was a teenager, I got treated. I haven't been back in the restaurant since then. Um, was there anything left in the original space that you were able to use for the renovation? Well, yeah, there, there was quite a bit. Um, you know, thanks to Landmarks, uh, the, all the original woodwork was still in, intact and in really good shape. Uh, the mirrors uh, were in good shape. Um, the lamps, the brass lamps were all there. Um, they required some, some TLC, but they were there. So there, you know, there was the basic elements were there. We, we had to attend to a lot of, a lot of those elements in various ways. Some of which, some, some we left completely as they were, and then some we put our own spin on and, and kind of refurbished <coughs> Well, and listeners can't see it, but the shot that I uh, saw of the three of you sitting in the bar, the place is absolutely gorgeous. It's magnificent. Um, and I can hardly wait to go uh, and go back again once, it's, once, once you're open. Um, did you have to um, – did you find any fixtures that were in other places that you brought into the restaurant, or was everything pretty much there? Well, we did find some uh, original fixtures up in a sort of attic space on the fourth floor of the building. Um, which we use in the second floor. Uh, as far as fixtures go, most of, m- most of the main space, the main dining room, the fixtures themselves were preserved. Um, but the ceiling was in disrepair and the floor was in disrepair. Uh, the fabric panels um, needed to be replaced and we needed furniture and we needed infrastructure as well. There was no kitchen. Uh, and, you know, we're also doing on the second floor, we're doing the private dining rooms and creating the Sunken Harbor Club so, you know, both in terms of the bones of the structure and the mechanicals, there was an insane amount of work that had to get done. Uh, and meanwhile, at the same time, we were all, as a team, invested in bringing the space itself back to life in the right way. And that was no small undertaking. And we all took it very seriously and very emotionally, and very passionately. And I'm actually extremely proud of the result that we ended up with, because Every detail that the ceiling fixed, the ceiling covering, what we did with the ceiling and the fabric panels, it, it really involved a lot of input from all of us and a lot of, um, uh, you know, back and forth and, and shredding and figuring out what's going to work and what's going to make it feel right. Hmm. I'd like to ask you about deciding to keep the name Gage and Toner. Usually when restaurateurs um, come up with um, uh, a new business or even a refurbished business that's been closed for a long time, uh, they tend to pick a name uh, to give it a new identity, a new vibe, a new feel. Um, I have two questions about that. One, did you think about a different name? And if you did, what had you decided to, to, to go back to the original name? We, we, of course, talked about it a lot and we thought about alternative names um, and we had some good ones. But the, the real sort of tidal wave of, of impetus was to keep the name. And it, part of that has to do with the iconic nature of the space and the fact that as a physical space, it had pre- been preserved so, um, so, so importantly for so many years. And 
we just felt like keeping the name would be the appropriate thing to do. Well, you are new business owners in downtown Brooklyn. Um, want to ask you, what, what do you like about the vibe of, of this part of the neighborhood? Because it actually, it's pretty distinct. It's, it's right next to, to Adams Street, and it's across from Borough Hall in the courts. Uh, that, that beginning part of Fulton Street is pretty distinct. What do you like about, about that part of the neighborhood? I have my own take, but Sinjin, you go first. I mean, it looks like the, it looks like the borough. It's, it's just, you know, it's incredibly uh, diverse. Um, and just, and there's just a lot of excitement. I mean, you know, my, uh, my son uh, goes to school about five blocks down Fulton street from, um, the restaurant. And so I walk down there to uh, pick him up and I walk past the, you know, the incense uh, sellers and the people selling mixtapes and playing the tapes out of a boom box and, you know, people shopping at the Macy's and, and it's just, it's just uh, so exciting and so it's so uh, vibrant and uh, and alive. I, I agree. I you know, Jeff, you asked me earlier about my you know coming to the United States. For me, Fulton Street, downtown Brooklyn, is a real rare treat these days. I feel like in an ever changing landscape of of Manhattan and the city in general, it is such a you know. I used to hate the term melting pot, but um, there is something to it. There is something to the you know to describe you know when you walk out outside of Gage and Tolner, you will see and hear all different you know types of languages being spoken and different types of people. And to me, that's quintessential New York City. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I, I just love that about the neighborhood. Well, one thing I really want to ask you about, because I'm a, I'm a real foodie, um, uh, talk about the menu. What, what's going to be on the menu when you reopen? Sure. I mean, the menu, you know, very much like, you know, Ben and um, Sinjin and I just talking about what this place is going to be in terms of look and feel and the menu. It is definitely um, about uh, upholding the tradition of what it was for 125 years, which is a classic oyster chop house. Um, Obviously, we're not going to be, you know, we're not going to be serving the type of food that they served 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. But why not comb through the menu? And um, well, there is really, cream spinach on the menu. I saw and cream spinach had to have been on the menu 50 years ago. Which sure, absolutely, really absolutely. But it really is sort of picking out, you know, um, some of the key uh, dishes uh, that sort of reflects the identity of Gage and Tolner. And obviously, um, you know, I don't have access really to all of the menu uh, items and um, stuff that they served over the years, but some few through our research. Um, but it really is about honoring the tradition and bringing it forward to the 21st century and to, and to just make it, you know, the best darn cream spinach that we could, we could muster up um, and, and really playing homage to, to some of the key players. And for me, you know, I have to mention Edna Lewis and that she spent several years there under the ownership of Peter Ashkenazi and her being, you know, one of the most iconic, you know, American chefs. Um, you know, her, her playing a part in the history of Gage and Tolner was very uh, important and, and it was a real, you know, it was a real getter for me. So, you know, we'd like to pay some homage to her. So, you know, hopefully some really familiar uh, food items that are done really well. Hmm. Well, we're um, just have a couple of minutes left. Sinjin, I wanted to ask you a question as the master cocktail creator and beverage director of the new Gage and Tolner and also the Sunken Harbor Club. Um, are there any kind of unique cocktail creations that you're going to bring to to the business? 
Well, uh, the, we're doing two completely different uh, cocktail programs at the restaurant. Downstairs at uh, Gage and Tolner, it's all drinks that were on the original menu. So they had um, a menu with over 40 mixed drinks on the list, which is, um, that's a lot even for, even for these days. But um, most of them are drinks that you would recognize, like martinis and Manhattans. Some of them were drinks that hadn't been uh, popular since the 19th century, like uh, uh, a port flip or a medjulip, you know. Uh, port flip, by the way, being a drink with a whole egg and uh, port wine and sugar. So uh, downstairs, we're going to serve, um, you know, drinks that were on the original menu, no original drinks. And upstairs, it'll be all original drinks, uh, things that... Um, like uh, uh, tiki drinks, essentially, uh, tropical drinks. Well, uh, I look forward to coming to Gage and Tolner when you reopen. Um, by the way, everyone, Gage and Tolner was supposed to reopen a couple of weeks ago in the middle of March, but due to the health crisis in New York, the uh, grand reopening has been postponed to a date that will be determined. Um, you can check it out at gageandtolner.com. That's G-A-G-E-A-N-D-T-O-L-L-N-E-R. Uh, Sinjin Frizzell, Ben Schneider, and Zoe Kim, thank you so much for being the guests on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks Jeff. for having us, Jeff. Yeah, thanks, well, we Jeff. just finished this week's trip to downtown Brooklyn. Um, if you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on a mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle's there at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, Mortgage Banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Sorier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who is our first guest tonight. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. 
Fridays 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 